Welcome to the Hills. All of you that watch online or are in person at West Fort Worth, North Richland Hills, and South Lake Campus. I want to again thank all of you that have been uh, participating in our Renew offering, all of you that have given, all of you that are still planning to give for the hundreds of thousands of dollars that have been and will be given. We're in a series called The Way of King Jesus, looking at his message called the Sermon on the Mount. In a few weeks, we're going to hear Jesus say, you cannot serve God and money. But we're going to see that you can serve God with money. And that's what so many of you have done. And I just want to say thank you. Now, it doesn't matter whether you're online or in person today. Everyone is watching me on a screen. And that's because I am celebrating my 41st anniversary with my wife. We've gone on a trip together. Uh, early in our marriage, we would have a big trip every five years. Well, last year we had 40, and we decided, you know what? For every year that we make it from now on, we're going to do another trip and celebrate. So that's what we're doing today. That's why I'm on the screen. We're having a great time together. And no, I'm not going to tell you where I am, but I will see you soon. So speaking of marriage... There are these two old men at a very posh, exclusive, expensive resort. They're on the first tee about to play a round of golf. A young woman walks up, kisses one of the old men on the cheek and says, I'm going to go lay by the pool for a while, then I'll meet you back in the room. She walks away. The other man says, who was that, your granddaughter? And he said, no, that's my new wife. Your new wife? How old is she? She's 27. How old are you? I'm 77. How did you get her to marry you? He said, I lied about my age. <laughs> oh, the other guy said, did you tell her you were 57? Oh, no, he said, I told her I was 97. <laughs> okay, we can all relate to that story, that there are few temptations more real than the temptation to not be real. In fact, did you know in some ways our economy is built on the appeal of inauthenticity. Uh, you've noticed, for example, how popular yoga pants have become. In fact, some of the most high-end uh, fashion designers now are creating yoga pants. The sale of yoga pants has gone up 10 times higher than the actual number of people actually signing up for yoga classes. Because here's the thing. We all want to walk around in our athletic wear looking like we're about to go exercise, even though we're not exercising. Now, I know the clothes are comfortable. Let me give you another example. A couple of years ago, Nordstrom said, you can get our new muddy, rugged jeans for just $500 a pair. That's right. Jeans that had mud baked into them. So it would look like you were out working in the dirt when you actually weren't. Hey, it gets even more silly. Did you know there's such a product as spray on mud? That's right. You got your big old gas guzzling SUV. You want people to think you do more with that than just go to soccer games. And so you spray on some mud. So people will think, well, you know, he probably came from an off-roading event where he was chasing wild boars or something. Okay, the point is we all understand that there are few temptations more real than the temptation to not be real. And let's be real. Faith communities are especially susceptible to the pressure to not be real. And Jesus knew it. So look with you now, chapter 6, verse 1. Be careful 
not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. If you do, you will have no reward from your Father in heaven. Now, Jesus has just finished a large section where he has put great emphasis on the importance of righteousness in his kingdom community. The kind of righteousness that goes deeper and goes wider than the kind of righteousness the religious leaders of his day were practicing. He says, your righteousness must surpass the kind of righteousness that you're witnessing from your leaders. And so he's given six examples. You have heard that it was said, but I say, and he's been teaching them, this is what surpassing righteousness looks like. So right after that teaching, Jesus knows he's got to give a warning. Be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. In other words, Jesus is saying, don't confuse surpassing righteousness with impressing righteousness. That everything I just taught you about righteousness is not something that you go and you perform in front of other people. And what Jesus does is follow this warning with the longest discourse in all the Gospels about hypocrisy. Now, the word hypocrite in Jesus' day was not a bad word. It basically was just used to describe an actor, someone that put on a mask to play a part that wasn't really who they were. Now, today, when we use the word hypocrite, we're usually talking about someone who does not walk their talk. They say the right thing, but they do the wrong thing. And that is hypocritical. But when Jesus uses the word hypocrite, he's using it a different way. Not about someone that says the right thing and does the wrong thing. Jesus uses the word to talk about someone who does the right thing, but does it for the wrong reason. So let's listen now to King Jesus, who's going to describe how to be fake and the way to be real. So we'll start reading in verse 2 of Matthew 6. So when you give to the needy, do not announce it with trumpets as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and on the streets to be honored by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. Then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the street corners to be seen by others. Truly, I tell you, they have received their reward in full. But when you pray, go into your room, close the door. And pray to your Father who is unseen. And then your Father, who sees what is done in secret, will reward you. And when you pray, do not keep on babbling like pagans, for they think they will be heard because of their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And then Jesus goes into uh, a teaching on what real prayer is like, and we'll look at that next week. But skip down now to verse 16. When you fast... Do not look somber as the hypocrites do, for they disfigure their faces to show others they are fasting. Truly, I tell you, they have received their award in full. But when you fast, put oil on your head and wash your face 
so that it will not be obvious to others that you are fasting, but only to your Father who is unseen, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. Okay, there's just so much here we need to unpack. And maybe the first observation we need to make is that King Jesus expects his subjects to give and to pray and to fast. In each instance, he did not say, if you give, if you pray, and if you fast, but when you give, and when you pray, and when you fast. Please note, Jesus does not say, boy, the temptation to be hypocritical is so great, so it would just be better if you didn't even bother with giving and praying and fasting. No, Jesus knows that commitment to these disciplines increases faith and builds spiritual strength, and he knows it because that is what it did for him. Remember, right before he gives this sermon, Jesus has been out in the wilderness praying and fasting for 40 days. Maybe the enemy thinks now he's weak and he's more susceptible to temptation. Oh no, Jesus was stronger than ever. 40 days of time with the Father. 40 days fasting. What is fasting? Fasting is saying no to my desires so I can say yes to the desires of God. Jesus was stronger than ever when Satan came along and said, here's something you might want to desire instead. Jesus said no. He was completely focused on God because these practices built spiritual strength. So let me just say, you cannot practice the righteousness the king wants if you don't engage in the disciplines the king practiced, like giving and praying and fasting. I need to say that again. You can't practice the righteousness the king wants if you're not engaging in the practices the king himself engaged in. And so, Jesus is expecting us to be people of spiritual discipline. Also, when we read these words of Jesus, he's not forbidding the public practice of spiritual disciplines. For example, Jesus commended a widow watching her give her two coins in public. He commended Mary, who very publicly anointed him with expensive perfume. And Jesus prayed in public when he uh, broke the loaves and fed the 5,000 and the multitudes. When he stood outside Lazarus' tomb, Jesus prayed in public. The early church certainly didn't understand Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount as meaning you should never practice spiritual disciplines in public. They prayed in public. In chapter 1 of Acts, they prayed in public about who the next apostle would be. In chapter 4, they prayed in public when they were under persecution. In chapter 3, it says that Peter and John were going up to the temple to pray. The early Christians prayed in public all the time, and they gave in public. In chapter 4 of Acts, it says the people would come, and they would bring their gifts, and they would lay them at the feet of the apostles. They gave very clearly in public. They fasted in public. Acts 13, the leaders of the church in Antioch are praying and worshiping and fasting when the Holy Spirit says set apart Paul and Barnabas. And so they all knew that each other was fasting. Here's the thing. Allegiance to the king is always personal, but it is never private. Jesus wants us to live out our discipleship in the public arena. 
Go back again in chapter 5 to the verse Taylor expounded so well a few weeks ago. Jesus said, verse 16, let your light shine before others that they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father in heaven. Now, you might be thinking right now, okay, pastor, I'm totally confused. Jesus said in one place, let your good deeds be seen. And now he says, make sure that no one sees your good deeds. I'm confused. I understand. And I think the key is the phrase that Jesus keeps using, to be seen. You see, the problem is not doing good things that are seen. The problem is doing good things to be seen. The problem is when you are righteousness, when you are righteous to enhance your reputation instead of God's. So several years ago, I watched a TV series my wife called The Crown about Queen Elizabeth. And some of you are thinking, you need to turn in your man card. Listen, I lost my man card a long time ago. So we're watching The Crown. And there's this scene in one of the episodes where the Queen Elizabeth is out of the country and she appoints Margaret, her sister, the princess, to stand in for her at several uh, royal events. And Margaret, who always thought the Queen was too rigid, wanted to bring some flair to the moment. So she joked with the press and she belittled dignitaries. And she gets a visit from the Prime Minister, Winston Churchill, who relieves her of her duties and says, When you are in public in official duties, you are not you. And Margaret said, Of course I'm me. And he says, The crown. The people have come not to see you, they've come to see the crown. And what Jesus is calling us to remember is that it is the kingdom of God and the one who was on the throne that we are bringing people's attention to, not ourselves. That's not the kind of righteousness that most people saw in those days. Jesus said of the religious leaders of Matthew 23, everything they do is done for people to see. And we understand, maybe more than any culture since those days, the pressure of doing things to be seen. Think about it. We live in a culture where being seen is so easy. We've got these smartphones, and we've got these apps, and we've got this social media platform. And any good thing we or anyone else does we can share with the world. And I'm not saying that's always bad. When you're a child, when you're a youth group, when your community group does a good thing and you want to post and let people know, I'm not saying that comes from a bad place. What I'm saying is, before you know it, we're starting to do things not because they are seen, but so they will get seen and so that we will get attention. As John Ortberg said one time, I know I'm supposed to be humble, but what if no one notices? This is not a problem we fix. This is a tension we navigate. To be public with our faith in a way that calls attention to the king and not to ourselves. And let's be real. 
It's not always real easy to do this. In fact, I don't think many people know that more than me. So I'm going to give you a personal testimony for just a moment. The Sermon on the Mount has been doing a job on me, but there's no part of it that maybe convicts me more than this part. Because think about it. My ministry, my primary identity to most people is very public. I literally stand on a stage. And the temptation to perform is so great. And I learned a long time ago as a minister, when you live to make people happy with you, their commendation and their affirmation can make you proud and their criticism can make you despair. This is so hard. In fact, some years ago, I was preaching on this text about not doing things for Jesus in order to impress other people. And I had a line in the sermon that I thought was pretty good. And I said that line, and I remember thinking to myself, oh, that was pretty good. I wonder if they were impressed. And immediately, the Holy Spirit convicted me in my sermon about being a hypocrite. I'm up here talking about don't do things to impress people. And I'm wondering, is this impressing people? I'm just telling you, this will always be a tension for me to navigate. Never a problem I can fix. And it is for you, too. We have never lived at a time where the temptation to post and promote is greater than now. How can we do good things that are seen, but not do good things to be seen? Well, I want to give you three takeaways that I think are going to help us. And here's the first. We need to remember this. Satan will always try to counterfeit righteousness. Just know that. There is no holy ground. Satan will not attempt to trespass. And so, listen, Christian. If the enemy cannot tempt you to do the wrong thing, he will settle for tempting you to do the right thing for the wrong reason. We see this in the Bible in Acts chapter 5. It says that the people would bring their money to the apostles. There was a man that sold a field and brought it all to the apostles. And they were so encouraged, they named him son of encouragement. They named him Barnabas. Well, there's a couple that sees what's going on and thinks, that's cool. I'd like some of that attention too. So Ananias and Sapphira bring some money from property they had sold and brought it to the apostles. Now, they didn't give all the money. But they gave the impression that they did. And here's the thing. The problem was not that they didn't give all the money. The problem was they wanted to create the impression that they did in order to make an impression. And look what Peter says to them. How is it that Satan has so filled your heart? Oh, and they made an impression all right. They both dropped dead. Now, our enemy knows well the allure of applause. And so he's going to do all he can to stimulate approval addiction, to try to promote counterfeit righteousness. I know this is why some people are turned off by church. They see people that call themselves Christians, and they're just posing in order to make other people think well of them. 
We know this is a problem. But let me just say to all of you that struggle with that, that posing is not a faith problem. It is a fallenness problem. Where can you go to escape pretenders? Everybody struggles with faking. Nobody's motives are always completely pure. And that's one reason, listen, Christian, you should be slow to judge somebody else's public display of devotion to Christ. I've heard criticism sometimes of the way some Christians worship and people will say they're just trying to call attention to themselves. Maybe they are. Maybe they're just so focused on God they're not even aware. We need to be slow to judge the way other people publicly express their devotion to God. We need to be quick to take the posture that we're going to guard our own heart from posturing when it comes to our own acts of devotion. I'll say it again. This is not a problem we can fix. This is a tension we will always have to navigate. How can we do good things that are seen, but not do good things to be seen? And I think maybe the heart of the sermon is in this next thing I'm going to share. That the secret to righteousness is secret righteousness. That it's wrong when we do right as a performance. And so Jesus says the best way to safeguard your heart is to do good when nobody is watching but God. And so three times Jesus affirms what is done in secret. You ever notice how we get this backwards? We tend to hide what we need to bring out into the open, our sin and our fallenness. We tend to hide our sin, and we tend to promote our goodness. And Jesus says, you got that backwards. You need to bring your sin out into the open. Nothing gets healed in the darkness. And maybe you need to hide your righteousness. You see, when we practice righteousness secretly, we are delivered from the bondage or the slavery of the opinion of others, whether it is good or bad. I think it's the third week in a row. I've used a Charles Spurgeon illustration. He and his wife had chickens, and they would sell their eggs. Never give away. They would sell their eggs. It didn't matter if you were from their church or even in their family. And some people criticize the Spurgeons for being greedy. What they didn't find out until after Mrs. Spurgeon passed away is that the Spurgeons would take the money they would get from those eggs and they used it to support two widows. And they never announced it. They didn't let their right hand know what their left hand was doing. But they were practicing secret righteousness. And I think we see this in the life of Jesus. That he was so intentional about only living for the applause of God. And I think the key to his staying focused on that intention was his commitment to secret prayer. Jesus was always creating his closet. Look at these verses with me. Mark 1.35, very early in the morning. While it was still dark, Jesus got up, left the house, and went off to a solitary place where he prayed. Luke 5.16, Jesus often withdrew to lonely places 
and prayed. One chapter later, one of those days, Jesus went out to a mountainside to pray and spent the night praying to God. And I would argue that one thing that kept Jesus focused only on living for the attention of God was the attention he gave to secret prayer. It was enough for Jesus to know that the Father knows. And so three times Jesus says, the Father sees. You can, you can rest in that truth. When no one else knows, the Father sees. And what impresses God is when you do the right thing because it is the right thing, whether anybody else is ever impressed. Let me say again, what impresses God is when you do the right thing because it's the right thing, even if no one else is ever impressed. Several years ago, I had a lunch with one of our elders. He wanted just to spend some time to encourage me our waitress walked up. We introduced ourselves, and my elder asked, how are you doing? And she was very honest. She said, not well. I just found out that I'm pregnant, and our finances are so tight, and I'm not sure how we're going to make it. And we expressed compassion to her. And then after our meal was done, and she was coming to get our plates I watched as my elder quietly pulled a $100 bill out of his wallet. He didn't announce it. He didn't even intend for me to see it. He hid it in his hand. And he took her hand and put it in her hand. And he said, God is going to be with you. He didn't promote it. He didn't announce it. He, I'm sure, didn't tell a single soul about it. But I saw it. And later in the parking lot, as we were walking to the car, he asked how I was doing. I said, well, I'm really concerned. Jamie might be pregnant, and I'm not sure how we're going to make it. Okay, I told you, I'm, I'm a work in progress. But I want to leave you with this big idea. The reward of righteousness is the attention of God. And so three times, Jesus says, not only God sees you, but... God will reward you. And what Jesus is saying is that it should be enough for us if only God sees, if God is the only witness. He says he'll reward you. How will God reward you? Well, he will increase your treasure account in heaven, which is the best investment you could ever make. God will reward you by shaping you into the image of Jesus as you practice the disciplines that Jesus practiced. But maybe most of all, God will reward you with the gift of his presence. Because what good is righteousness for God apart from intimacy with God? So some years ago, a pastor I know of named Wayne Cadero in Hawaii said a member of his church gave he and his wife a, a certificate for a supper at a very, very expensive restaurant, way above what they could afford. And they were so excited. They got their nicest clothes cleaned. He got his Ford Pinto waxed and washed because it was the kind of place that did valet parking. They, he said, I even put on cologne. We got there and we had the most delightful time. We had the appetizer. We had the salad. We picked expensive entrees. And then when the meal was over, 
He said to his wife, hand me the certificate. And she said, I thought you had the certificate. And they were in a mess. Because they acted rich. They dressed rich. They even smelled rich. But they didn't have the most important thing at all. And you can act holy. And you can look holy. And you can sound holy. But if you don't have a dynamic relationship with God, you've missed the most important thing. Jesus said the reward of righteousness is time with God. Few verses have meant more to me these last few years than from Philippians 4. Do not worry about anything, but pray and ask God for everything you need, always giving thanks. And God's peace, which is so great we cannot understand it, will keep your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. That when I engage in the practice of not worrying, but praying and giving thanks to God, I experience His presence, His powerful peace in my life. And here's what I've learned. The more conscious I am of God, the less self-conscious I am around others. And that's when I can do good things that get seen because I'm not doing them to be seen. It's the way to be real. It is real liberating. And so, my very first ministry job after I graduated from college, I was an intern at a church. I've got a degree. I think now I'm ready to do some serious ministry. I show up for my first day of work. The minister took me into the sanctuary. Back then, to register attendance, you filled out on a card your name with a pencil. And it was a big sanctuary. He said, our pencils are really dull. He handed me a pencil sharpener and said, sharpen the pencils. Are you kidding me? Four years of college for this? I have to admit, I was a little offended. Like, you're wasting all this ministry talent. But somewhere about the second or third row, I, I, I had this thought. I didn't know it then. I know now it was from the Holy Spirit. But here's the thought I had. If I can't trust you to find joy in doing small things for me, why should I ever trust you to do big things for me? And I look back now and I am so thankful. That's the first thing I ever did for a church. I spent the next several hours praying and singing Spending time with God determined these are going to be the sharpest and best pencils any church has ever had. Because I wasn't doing it to be seen. I was doing it for God. And while I was sharpening pencils, God was sharpening me. So let me ask you, are you real? And here's a good question to ask so you can answer that question. Do I find joy if only God finds out? Does it give me joy to do the right thing because it's the right thing, even if only God saw it? 
When no one else needs to know, Jesus says that's when you can know that you are being real. And so, remember again, Jesus at the end of the sermon did not say you're wise if you like the sermon or if you listen to the sermon. You're wise if you do it, and we need to do it. So here's your homework this week. Your homework this week is to find a way to bless one person without them knowing it was you. I mean it. I want everyone to do this. Maybe it's to send a note without signing your name. Maybe it's to uh, buy a gift without letting them know who bought it. Maybe you show up early and you do a task for them. And when they arrive, they don't know who did it. But every one of us this week, let's find a creative way to do one thing for somebody without them ever knowing. Because here's what I've learned. When I live my life not to get a blessing from people, but out of the blessing of God, I am never more free. And it is the way to be real. So everyone bow your head with me, please. And so God, please, we pray, give us ears to hear this word. Give us wisdom to know, God, how we can live our faith in public in a way that brings glory to you and not attention to ourselves. Help us to recommit to those secret disciplines that Jesus practiced so that we can be more like him and bring him more glory. And in his name we pray. Amen.